0: It's almost like now, in addition to educating kids, teachers are being expected to be prepared in a war zone. Never did it cross my mind that I would be asked to be a soldier or that I would ask to be a police officer.
1: We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast for red, wine, and blue.
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda Weinstein. I'm Rachel Vinman. I'm Jasmine Clark. And you're listening to the Suburban Women Problem. Can you believe it's almost September? We did an episode a couple weeks ago where we talked about our kids going back to school. And that means that extremists are going back to banning books, banning accurate history, banning sex ed, a whole lot of banning. You get a ban. You get a ban. <laughs> Very Oprah about the bans. All the bans. All the bans. <laughs> And now those same extremists are talking about arming teachers. How is it that they don't trust teachers to choose their own books, but they do trust them with a gun? We'll be joined by Pam Crossman, a teacher in Ohio who knows firsthand how hard it is to be an educator right now. And after that, I'll get to share my interview with Dr. Caitlin Jedelina. Dr. Caitlin is an epidemiologist who specializes in gun violence, but became famous for her daily COVID updates. You may know her as your local epidemiologist. And speaking of students and going back to school, let's talk about the student loan forgiveness that was announced last week. What were your guys' initial reaction to hearing about it? I can just start off by saying
3: that uh, my initial reaction was, this sounds awesome for someone, not necessarily for me. Uh, but, uh, you I think know, there was a lot of reaction yeah. like that. I mean, uh, 10,000 uh, really is not much when it comes to my student loans. That does feel like I'll never be done paying.
2: Wait, so Jasmine, you're still paying half student loans right now.
3: Yes, I still have student loans and I have a kid that's about to go to college. So I'll be still paying student loans when my own children are in college college and graduate from college if they go the traditional path. That's my life. That's my reality. But at the same time, I can still be happy for other people when good things happen to them.
2: It doesn't seem that hard to me.
3: Well, how... You know, forward thinking of you. Uh,
4: <laughs> it's called living in a society, and right. many people are incapable of having such an egalitarian view. I mean, you know, like same. We're we're beyond it. We paid off Alex's student loans until uh, I think we were forty, and I, I want to say two things. Number one, I highly, highly recommend the book, The Price You Pay for College by Ron Lieber. I learned a lot about just the current situation and the climate because it's a long time before our daughter goes to college. But what I mostly learned is there's a lot of misinformation out there. Oh, who knew? (laughs) And it's all, it's kind of like healthcare, right? It's, it's, we've, we've developed this ecosystem and it's going to take a long time to pull it apart.
2: And I mean, there's a lot of things that don't happen when you have student loans Absolutely, and that are good for the economy. So the things that don't happen are you delay home buying, you delay having children, you might delay starting a business. And all of those things I just mentioned are actually really good for the economy. Right. So getting rid of this debt has some really good economic implications. But man, did I watch some economists and other people literally throw tantrums about they focus some of them on inflation. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, guys, I don't think it's going to have a big impact on inflation because we're not writing $10,000 checks to people, right? We're limiting loans. So that's very, very different, right? So if we were giving $10,000 checks, I'd be like, yeah, I think this is going to hurt inflation a little bit, but it's not that. It's limiting what people are paying every month for years and years and years and years, right? So. Jasmine's still paying student loans, right? So the people who'd be paying these student loans over the next 10 years, that benefit spreads to 10 years. It's not a one-time $10,000 check. So the impact on inflation was so overblown by some people. It's just not gonna have an impact at all or it's going to be modest if anything. Yeah. I think that people
3: don't realize that
2: if you had,
3: let's say like a $14,000 loan or $11,000 loan, your payments might not necessarily be huge because they're supposed to be like spread out over this long period of time, but that's extra. That's a few extra hundred dollars. They basically just took a bill away. And now that's a little bit of extra money. In people's pockets, so they can do a thing that they want to do, like purchase their own home or start their own business. And so it's kind of like a tiny, and I don't say tiny because $10,000 is still a lot of money, but it is an investment back into regular, everyday working people. And I am so sorry. I get so freaking frustrated when, like, super duper rich, multimillionaires that had no problem taking PPP loans, despite the fact that they probably could have just done without them. Mm -hmm. Yes, they could have used their own money to subsidize their businesses. (laughs) Yes. And these people are poo-pooing when like regular, everyday people get something from the government. Then it's like, Oh no, this is horrible. This is the worst thing ever. And I'm like, why? No. So
2: let's not just talk about some people let's name names here. Right. (laughs) What's her name? (laughs) Oh yeah. So let's talk. I don't know. Marjorie Taylor green. She got a PPP loan. She got money from the government, and then had loan forgiveness. How much did she get? 183000 So Marjorie Taylor Greene wants to go on Fox News to complain about student loan forgiveness. Meanwhile, she got $183,000 from the government. Matt gets $482,000 in PPP loans. You have Florida Congressman Vern Buchanan went on Fox News to complain about it. He got $2.3 And he wants to complain about 10 grand that somebody else gets. That's ridiculous. It is.
4: and I mean, you know, the PPP loans were loans to keep businesses functioning and employees didn't have to be laid off during the pandemic. I mean, they were, if you used them for the right reasons, they were meant to not be a loan, but to be a grant. But it's the same thing. It's
3: the same principle. It
4: is not different. They wanted There are lots of people who want to say, these aren't the same things. You can't compare this. I mean, I was called all like an idiot, you know, in every possible way. You could call me stupid if I thought that they, these two things were analogous, but they they are. I mean, they alone's Alone. Are. Forgiveness Thank is you. Forgiveness. I mean, but, Yeah,
3: absolutely. It was a loan that they were just told they would get forgiven. Like, and they were like, great, a loan that I will get forgiven. Yeah. I would just like
4: to say shout out to the person doing the White House comms last week yes. who woo, woo. pointed out all these things that Amanda just said. She talked about all the people. And by the way, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene does not go on Fox News because she is too crazy for Fox News.
2: Um, oh, Newsmax. I think it was Newsmax. Yeah. Congratulations, Georgia. <laughs> But here's the other thing. So with the PPP loans, so economists actually looked at what percent went to workers because the goal of the PPP was to help keep workers jobs to help with salaries. Yes. Right. Only about 23 to 34 percent of that actually went to workers. Mm-hmm. The rest of that money, all of those hundreds of thousand dollars we just talked about, they went to business owners and shareholders who are not in poverty, who generally are not struggling here. So now they're trying to make the inequality argument because here's the thing on average college grads do out earn non-college grads, right? So this on the face of it looks like, well, you're helping people who earn more with this program, but it's not exactly true because most student loan holders, a lot of them don't even have a college degree. Mm -hmm. They didn't finish 40%. Yes. And if you look at who actually, so that whole inequality argument really breaks down when you look at who actually holds student loan debt. It tends to be people who are not wealthy, not from wealthy families. It tends to be minorities. It also tends to be women. And for all of those reasons, the inequality argument just doesn't hold weight.
4: Yes to all of that. We're intentionally being misled. And this is why I love the White House pushing back. Yes. I love someone pushing back. And, you know, later that day, I don't know if you guys know, but I mean, if you guys made this connection, but later that day, the president was at a campaign event for the midterms. And I think what we saw that night was the actual Joe Biden, yes. not the restrained, not the-
3: dark Brandon. Have you guys seen dark Brandon? Yes. yes. I don't even know what dark Brandon is. Like, I don't know where it came from, but
2: I saw all Me the memes. The memes were hilarious. <laughs> yep. Get rid of that malarkey. And I loved
4: it because we were telling them, this is what we want. We want punch back. Don't let their lies go unchecked. I mean, I said it a couple of weeks ago on CNN. I said it last week on the podcast. I will keep saying it every day. We have to fight back. I'm fighting. You guys are fighting. We're fighting for our families. We're fighting for our children. We're fighting for our communities. We want our elected officials to fight too. Yes.
2: So I think that an important point that you brought up that reminds me of something you said earlier is why is tuition going up so high? One of the main reasons tuition is going up is because we stopped the state, stopped spending money on public education, and it started happening under Reagan. When an economist, I'm just gonna apologize for economists right now, guys. (laughs) When an economist advised Reagan that we can't let everyone get a college degree because certain people shouldn't have a college degree, right? Who are certain people? Basically anyone who wasn't from a wealthy family or anyone did, that didn't look like a white man. Yep. So it comes back to the idea of our democracy. Our democracy relies on a well-educated population. Right. And I'm talking well-educated from birth through college, but it is all related to saving our democracy,
3: Right. I think we all have seen maybe social media just has magnified it, but we see the repercussions of failing to invest in our public schools. Yeah. To your point, Amanda, it's not just about the economy. It's just about having a functioning society. Mm -hmm. Uh, A democracy works when people aren't just voting, but they're making informed votes.
2: So I think this is a perfect time to bring on our first guest, who is a high school social studies teacher. I've actually met her before because her husband is a state rep here in Ohio, and he's currently running for attorney general. Pam's husband and mine actually went on a road trip together to see a (laughs) coal plant in Indiana that the Ohio GOP was bailing out. So let's bring on Pam Crossman. Hi,
3: hi, hi, Pam.
2: Pam, good to see you. I just told him a little bit about when your husband and uh, mine went on a little road trip to Indiana together.
3: <laughs> yes, they had quite the adventure.
2: <laughs> I'm so excited that we have you on. So you're a high school history and social studies teacher. Yes. What is it like trying to teach American history right now? Uh, Well, it's
0: a lot harder than it used to be. Um, No thanks to some of the, you know, policies that have been passed by Republicans in Columbus. It feels like at every turn, we're getting attacked for this, that and the other, or our jobs are being made less safe. So it's, it is really challenging right now. And it comes as no surprise that there's now a shortage of educators nationally.
2: So here in Ohio, we recently passed House Bill 99, which drastically reduces the number of training hours teachers need to carry guns in school. Yeah. When you hear people suggesting that we can stop school shootings by giving teachers guns or body armor, what goes through your mind? Well,
0: you know, in 2004, 2005, when I decided I wanted to become a teacher, I knew what I was getting into and never did it cross my mind that I would be asked to be a soldier or that I would ask to be a police officer um, with minimal training. Um, It's almost like now, in addition to educating kids, teachers are being expected to be prepared in a war zone as the last line of defense in saving students. It's really unconscionable,
3: honestly. Yeah, I just can't even imagine like... We saw with our own eyes people who are, quote, trained to handle an active shooter. Yet it took them quite a bit of time to go into a school where they knew someone on the other side of the door also had firepower. And so I just can't imagine going into the classroom and I teach as well, I teach at a college level. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't imagine going into the classroom and being expected to basically, you know, shoot an intruder on top of everything else that they expect me to do. I got to meet my standards. I got to turn in my lesson plans. I got to do all this. Oh, and I also need to be prepared shoot people.
0: The idea that arming us somehow makes us safer is just ridiculous, right? It actually makes us less safe. Police departments across the state of Ohio find that arming educators is not the answer. You know, I really think that a lot of this comes from politicians who don't have the, they're passing the buck on to educators, right? They're, They're making us responsible for society's ills. I feel like the radical right-wing extremism has bled into the classroom and made our jobs significantly harder than they need to be. Yeah, I think that's
4: really what's happening. It's just, in general, the rise in extremism. But because people always like to ask me about my husband, I'm going to ask you about yours. (laughs) He is running for Ohio Attorney General after serving as a state representative for two terms. And thank you for his service and yours as well. I know it's a family affair. Could you talk a little bit about the extremism that he's been fighting in Ohio?
0: Yeah, um, Jeff. Constantly says that and truly believes that this isn't a right and left thing. This is a right and wrong thing. And Ohio, it has, especially at the statehouse in Ohio, has been so corrupt for so long and gotten away with it relatively unchecked. But just standing up for regular Ohioans and trying to make sure that we all have a fair shake, um, whether it's, you know, his opponent just recently signed onto a lawsuit that uh, he joined 19 other attorneys general from around the country to sue the federal government for the right to discriminate against LGBTQ plus students. In regards to school lunches, it's it's insane. I mean, like we're talking about kids here. and That's just the kind of person that Jeff is. He wants to make sure that everybody has a fair shake and everybody is treated equally.
4: Yeah. Oh, you mean like the basic things in the Bill of Rights, in the Constitution that everyone like swears to uphold? Yes,
2: right. Exactly. (laughs) He also his Jeff's opponent also went on Fox News to gaslight the 10 year old. Like, oh, my God, that guy. Ew, that's him. That's his opponent. I know So like the contrast could not be more stark between Jeff and his opponent. So I also have to ask Pam. I know. So, uh, you know, I'm a spouse of a politician of a public servant. He doesn't like the word politician. And I know campaigning is hard, but like you're not supposed to complain about it as the spouse. (laughs) But didn't you get married during this campaign season? What has that been like?
0: Yes, we got married the day that the Dobbs decision came down. Oh my so gosh. This day, yes, literally that day. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it has been a bit crazy, um, but we we joke that we're on our 88th county honeymoon um, going through <laughs> the state of Ohio. It has been wonderful to get to meet people from all over the state. And um, I mean, I'm sure you've had this experience, too, where constituents will just come up to your husband and say, like, we need you.
2: Wow. Wait. So, Pam, your school district is pretty progressive, actually. And you defeated a bunch of extremist school board candidates last November. So is there anything we can learn from that win to hopefully win this November, too?
0: I think a lot of it is just talking to people on the ground and, yeah. and showing them we're normal people. And we we agree probably on more logical things than we than we think. Yeah. Um for example, like, I didn't know what CRT was until I was told that I was teaching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had not a clue until I heard about it on a podcast that I was like, wow, I didn't know that I was teaching this. And when you <laughs> actually find time to ex- explain to families and you know community members, Carla, oh, this is actually what we're teaching. And they're kind of like, oh oh, okay. You know, they, they realize that, um, the rhetoric that is coming from the far right is nothing short of nonsense. Um, so I think that getting in that fight on the ground level and talking face-to-face is, uh, really valuable, especially in elections like this year.
2: Pam, I really want to thank you for joining us today. I'm so glad we could have you on the podcast.
4: Me too. It was wonderful meeting you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for all you do.
2: Now we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have my interview with Dr. Caitlin Jedalina.
1: Thanks for listening to the Suburban Women Problem. You know, there's one name we hear more than any other in our Facebook community sweep, one person we go to on a daily basis for facts, context, perspective, and hope. Her name is Heather Cox Richardson, and she's joining us for a live virtual event on September 1st. Come learn, get inspired, and find out what you can do to protect our rights, freedom, and democracy. You can sign up by going to redwine.blue. Thanks again, and enjoy the rest of the episode.
2: Our guest today is an epidemiologist, a science communicator, an educator, and a mom. She's the author of Your Local Epidemiologist, a newsletter where she makes public health science understandable to everyone. Dr. Caitlin Jedalina, thank you for joining me on The Suburban Women Problem.
5: Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: Science communication is so important. I know even in the work I do as an economist that like trying to get complicated ideas across is hard, but very important. And your newsletter has reached over 160 million readers. Why do you think it's resonated with so many people?
5: It's a really good question. (laughs) uh, I've been trying to self-reflect on why. You know, I think it's because uh, it's filling a massive gap Um, and it has been throughout the pandemic that there's no really good place where people can um, rely on getting information that is grounded in the evidence in that it speaks in, I always like to say, quote unquote, English, either scientists don't know how to talk to uh, community members or we're not taught that (laughs) we're not, we're not. not. And I was never even taught that. Um, So I think that it's um, it's a huge gap that we really need to fill going forward in our, in our field and uh, in the entire science community.
2: So you mentioned you started this newsletter during COVID, which makes a lot of sense. And there's been a lot of confusion and misinformation around the pandemic. But your specialty is actually in studying violence. You're a violence epidemiologist. That is a new term for me. Can you explain what that means?
5: Yeah, that's right. So violence epidemiology, it's a subset of epidemiology. And what it really means is that I was formally trained in infectious diseases. And what we do in epidemiology as a whole is we try to find patterns, patterns of disease, patterns of health outcomes, because if we can find patterns, that means that health problem is predictable. And if it's predictable, that means it's preventable. And so in my research, we use infectious disease models to show that violence is also contagious, that there's these predictable patterns of, of violence, uh, for example, gun violence or suicides. And we, because of those predictable patterns, we can create prevention methods for that.
2: Wow. That is such important work. We certainly do have an epidemic of gun violence in this country, so it's really important to understand the roots and what's causing that. Uh, So as we're also going back to school, one issue with gun violence are school shootings, and a lot of us are, you know, thinking about that as we're sending our kids on the bus to school every day. So why do you think school shootings have become such an issue?
5: Yeah, you know, it's, it's, well, I know why, because they gain a ton of media attention. And they have far-reaching impacts on our community-level mental health and even our perceptions of safety, right? Schools are supposed to be the most safe place for our kids to go. Um, I think one thing as a parent that I continually remind myself is actually how And rare mass shootings are compared to other firearm injuries in the United States. So among all firearm injuries in the US about 1% of injuries are from mass shootings, the majority of them are from suicides or from homicides. And so I think keeping that um, in perspective is important for a mom, you know, uh, mm, feeling safe. It helps. Yeah, it's feeling safe so your kids go to school. But I think that it's also important perspective to realize that mass shootings are very American. Mm. They're not happening anywhere else in the world. And that's because we just have a lot of access to more guns compared to other countries, I think in the United States, the latest estimate I saw is that we have about 120 firearms per 100 people. Um, The next country with the most firearms is Yemen uh, and they have 52 per 100. And so there's definitely this also lingering in the background that I have to also balance (laughs) as well as an American.
2: Wow, guess I'm going to Yemen. (laughs) (laughs) So as rare as they are, we still would rather have it be none. Are there ways that we can prevent these school shootings? What do you think about arming teachers?
5: (laughs) Well, it's really the the perspective of where where do we want to intervene? Um, I think a lot of parents feel very helpless to this problem, but there's a lot that we can do as parents. For example, one really low-hanging fruit is uh, gunfire safety and storage. Uh, If you have kids in the house, um, make sure your guns are are stored and locked. Um, You know, another great thing that us parents can do is normalize the question of when our kids go to other people's houses. You know, they they ask about allergies if they're spending the night, ask about their gun safety and if they have a gun and if it's locked up. I think that is a really safe question to ask and uh, a legitimate one. I think the other thing a lot of individuals can do is this campaign that really started with the Sandy Hook, which is hear something, say something, particular to mass shootings, about 86% of mass shooters leak their plans. Um, Most of them leak it to strangers or coworkers or friends and neighbors. And so if you hear or see someone in a crisis or your kids see someone in a crisis on Instagram, um, it's really important to know what to do. For example, you can anonymously report. So that, I think that's individual, but then there's community level interventions. For example, how do we make schools safer, right? Um, I don't think putting more guns in the equation like teachers is a great solution, Um, but there are other things we can do, like make sure there's one entry to the school, make sure that the doors are locked, but we have to also balance that with not making schools like jails, right? We, We want to make them feel safe too. I think a really important question and debate we need to have is about active shooter drills, And whether kids do need to be involved in those or whether those should be more of a teacher administrative drills that they just know what to do. So we also don't stoke this fear in children that school is not safe. Um, And there's many, many other ways to do things we can do as a community. But um, I think those are really the low hanging for us parents.
2: So your field of research has been deeply impacted by a lack of funding. What's going on with federal funding to study gun violence? And is that going to change anytime soon?
5: So it's actually a really interesting story. Um, We actually don't have a lot on mass shootings or gun violence at all because of lack of funding, like you said. Um, In 1993, There's this really famous study published that showed that if you have a gun in the home, it increased your risk of homicide in the home. I think this makes sense. But this in 1993 set off a political domino effect and actually caused this thing called the Dickey Amendment, which was inserted into the CDC spending bill by Congress. And it basically said that no one, no funds from Congress can be spent um, to advocate or promote gun control. And this language was really unclear, but a lot of people weren't willing to risk their career to find out what that language actually meant. So the Funding for Firearm Injury Prevention Uh, research really quickly dried up. And this set our research back decades. I mean, we don't even know who's dying and where they're dying from gun violence. We don't know how many guns there are. We don't know what the problems are. And we haven't been able to work with communities like gun owners to find solutions, the good news is that this is slowly changing. Um, actually, in 2020, for the first time in about 25 years, our federal budget included $25 million to research gun-related deaths and injuries, um, which is a really good start. And it seems like a lot of money though, but it's it, it doesn't accurately reflect the health crisis we're having. Um, we need about $1.4, $1.6 billion in research to curb this epidemic. So it's changing, um, but I think too slowly, we need a lot more um, push
0: out there.
2: Yeah, when we don't have the funding for these studies, we don't have good data. And then what kind of bubbles up is a bunch of misinformation. About gun violence, what it's caused by. And you can see political sound bites then come into play um, that, you know, it's, you know, I don't know, pick a political soundbite from the, you know, NRA or any politician.
5: We're seeing that with COVID. Mm. We're seeing that with monkeypox. Um, we're seeing that with almost every public health problem in the United States. And mm-hmm. um, that is incredibly frustrating. Um, and, you know, we've seen it in the past too. For example, take the tobacco industry. The tobacco industry has really powerful lobbyists but we eventually won public health of you know advocates and scientists um kept following the science kept fighting for it and we eventually got a very clear picture of what cigarettes were doing um to not only those smoking but those around us and so i have actually i actually have a lot of hope i think this is going in the right direction i just wish it would be moving faster
2: i know we all do <laughs> <laughs> So your research also includes studying domestic violence. One thing we're worried about with the fall of Roe v. Wade is that more women will be trapped in abusive relationships. Is that something that you're also concerned about?
0: Yeah,
5: absolutely. Um, so we see that all of these kind of public health problems, they are connected. And the Roe v. Wade uh, taking the women's right away to choose an abortion or not Um, unfortunately leaves her in very dangerous situations. And so we are very concerned that the risk of um, domestic violence, which is linked to also guns, uh, will be increasing with that overturning. And I'm very concerned for women, especially in these big deserts of lack of abortion care.
2: Wow, are there any other effects from Roe v Wade uh, that you're worried about or that you're thinking about in your work? Oh, my I mean, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> let me count the ways.
5: <laughs> I mean, yeah, i I'm very concerned on a on a lot of um fronts, you know, not just physical health of the women, not just mental health of the women that can't get an abortion if they want one. But also we've seen in studies like the Turnaway study, the effect on the children as well. Um, the ones that are born as well as the siblings um, are put back decades in economic uh, restraints as well and so, this is going to have ripple effects. And I do think it's a public health emergency. I know the White House has been debating for a while whether they should call it one, but it really is going to affect a lot of our lives in ways we also don't realize it either. I think it'll have an impact, for example, on emergency care. I think it'll have an impact on maternal and infant mortality. So it's going to be really quite heartbreaking to watch going forward.
2: Wow. So the turn away study you mentioned is as far as I know, top notch in terms of what is this causal effect of denying abortion to women? And so when you're, when you think about, so I think a lot about causal effects in the research that I do. And if you think about gun violence, right? So you hear a lot of, you know, talking points on the right, right? You know, guns don't kill people people kill people, but you actually study what is killing people. So what are some of the big things, you know, that what is leading to this gun violence? You know, you talked about access to guns, which is huge. Is it really just access to guns? Are there other things that we should be looking for too?
5: It really depends on the type of gun violence we're talking about. So for example, if we're talking about mass shootings, we are starting to see patterns of what these perpetrators look like. You know, they have very traumatic Mm upbringings in childhoods. They have um, sometimes, but not always mental health issues, or we're not able to access mental health mm. suicides, um, we see is also obviously related to mental health, but also access. So if we take away guns, we see that the risk of suicides and the risk of completing a suicide, maybe not suicide ideation. Decreases substantially, and so it is a constellation of things that we will have to do. We will have to chip away at each one of these things to try and make them safer and safer, so we can reduce uh, gun deaths in the United States.
2: So I know our listeners and your fans would be upset if we didn't ask for a brief update about where things stand with COVID and vaccination. So how are we feeling as we send kids back to school this fall?
5: yeah you know it's a really weird time in the pandemic right we're in between this like massive emergency crisis and in between endemic like this isn't normal still and so i don't know it'll be very interesting to see what happens this fall i think that we will still have substantial days of school missed from kids just because we will keep seeing outbreaks especially among schools that didn't upgrade their ventilation system or have low vaccination rates. So we'll see. Um, I I don't know. I think we're going to be somewhere in between of normal and uh, not normal. One thing that does keep me up at night is the vaccination rates among our kids. Uh, They are suboptimal. I mean, we're talking about 30 percent of kids under 12 have even one vaccine. Uh, my little girls are three and two years old, and only about three percent of their age group have had their first vaccine. And so, I'm 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 concerned about vaccine uptake, and even more so, I'm concerned about that hesitancy kind of bleeding into other vaccines as well, like we're seeing with Blue with polio
2: right now. Oh, yeah. polio too. Oh, no. <laughs> man, that's a my my biggest thing is like I need my kids in school you are going to get that vaccine and go off on your bus to school. So I'm actually surprised it's that low. Do you think parents are just scared because this is a new vaccine and it's kids or what's going on there?
5: Yeah, you know, I think it's a question of pandemic fatigue. They're just tired of hearing of this. Um, I think it was actually really difficult for me to find a vaccine appointment for my little girls. So it may be a little bit of the access thing. And then you're right. I think that um, there's this sense that COVID-19 is not severe enough um, to get vaccinated, uh, which is unfortunate because COVID-19 leads to the most death compared to any other vaccine preventable disease we vaccinate our kids for. So I think it majorly has to do with misinformation, this thing about the infodemic, just too much stuff and people can't find good evidence. And so they throw their hands in the air and don't get them vaccinated. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, but we are surely still working on it. I'm hoping to get people the right information they need.
2: Wow. So very low risk of the vaccine. Alternative, very high risk of having your kid at home when you're trying to do work, <laughs> yelling that they've pooped, which mine did one time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before you go, we like to end on a lighter note by asking our guests a few rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. So you study a lot of really tough subjects. What do you do for self-care?
5: I get a pedicure and I I just, we we go to the beach um, down in San Diego. So that helps a lot. Ooh. Oh man. That was a good answer.
2: All right. What talent do you have that might surprise us?
5: I love cross stitching. Oh, I know it sounds so grandma ish, but I just love doing that. <laughs> it just doesn't take a
3: mind.
2: I love a good sassy cross stitch. I have shared a few sassy cross stitch memes where I was like, "Ooh, I like that. <laughs> There's something about a sassy cross stitch. that is just really funny. All right. What's your favorite thing to do with your kids on the weekend?
5: I was going to use the same answer. I love going to the beach with them. Um, it's easy for them to run around, and then they get tired for nap time. But um, but but yeah, that's that's I think our number one.
2: All right. So what is your dream? I mean, you're already at the beach, but what is your dream vacation?
5: You know, we we love traveling a lot. I've been to I think sixty different countries. Wow. Um, one thing that I haven't been able to check off yet is India. And so that is on my list to go to Taj Mahal to go to Southern India beaches. So hopefully one
2: day I'll make it there. Wow. Do you take your young kids to all these other countries? No. So because
3: they've
5: been, they were pandemic babies. Oh, you have pandemic kids. Yes. Oh
2: no. I don't even think about that.
5: We're taking them to France in about one month. So that should be interesting with two toddlers on a 12 hour plane ride.
2: Let's see. Oh, no, you're great. Do you recommend melatonin? Yeah.
5: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: All right. This is the end of our rapid fire questions. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your research?
5: Uh, yeah, so I have a newsletter. It's called Your Local Epidemiologist. It is on Substack. So if you just Google Your Local Epidemiologist, you should be able to find it. It's also on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm also on Twitter.
2: Awesome. I have learned so much talking to you. I love the information that you are putting out there. And I love that it is combating misinformation, which is really what we need. More data, more information, more research, the better. Thanks for stopping by the suburban women problem.
5: Yeah. Thank you for having me.
3: Welcome back, everyone. So Amanda, I really enjoyed listening to your interview with Dr. Caitlin. And I think I'm a little bit uh, partial, maybe a little biased, uh, (laughs) because, you know, science communication is my love language. And uh, I also just appreciate when a person can kind of communicate the hard stuff. So yeah, I, I just, I just think
2: that I, I really enjoyed it. I was thinking that the whole time I was like, man, I'll bet Jasmine's wishes she was here right now. And like, I didn't even know her field existed. And she is somehow explaining it to me to where I'm like, I totally understand your field now. And I'm sure I, there's a lot of things I don't understand, but I felt like I understood it. Yeah.
3: And that's, that's what communication is about. Science communication is all about. Um, and I, I especially liked the part where she talked about violence being an epidemic, When we hear the word epidemic, it's very easy for us to think like disease, Mm -hmm. Uh, but we don't think about things like violence or gun violence and things like that. But those can be epidemics too. And when we look at them in that way, we can study them in a manner that actually allows us to get better solutions. When you realize that the number one cause of death for children, it used to be car accidents, but instead now it's gun violence. Like Yeah, that's definitely an epidemic and that's something that we should address.
4: We did address it with uh, car accidents and now it's not number one. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Seeing it as an epidemic can take a little bit of the contentiousness out of it um, can make it a little bit more scientific, if you will, to discuss it. Right. But if we discuss it as an epidemic, and like, look, we had an, an epidemic of car fatalities, of vehicular fatalities for children, we addressed it by enforcing seatbelt rules, by having car seats yeah, in the back we're you know, car yeah, car yeah, seats we facing, seat, yeah. all these things that we're constantly doing, you know? And and it does, it does absolutely make a difference, but If we're ever going to change things, we have to talk about them and we can't talk about them and have people hear information if we don't find better ways to communicate that that's effective.
2: That's a good point. And I think the word epidemic makes you realize like it could affect me. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I don't have COVID now, but when it's an epidemic, mm-hmm. I might have it soon. Right. And same with gun violence. Like right? if we, if it doesn't seem like it's an epidemic, it's like, well, I don't think this will really affect me. But when you know, it's an epidemic that you could be in church, you could be in school, you could be at your town's 4th of July parade, right? The grocery and store. It might affect you the grocery yeah. store. Mm-hmm. Right. So the word epidemic, I feel like is a way of really explaining like this could happen to you. And if you don't want a world where it's increasingly likely this could happen to you, then we should address this epidemic.
3: Absolutely.
2: All right. So our favorite epidemiologist, Jasmine, what is your toast to joy? Uh, so
3: my toast to joy this week, actually, so microbiologists. Although I do love epidemiology as well. Sorry, microbiologist. Yeah, I I, I love all the ologies at this point, <laughs> uh, especially ones that deal with public health and healthcare in general. You're our
2: go-to, by the way, when we're like, We've got epidemiology questions and what should we do? We all text Jasmine. We're like, Jasmine, what do you think about? You're not the only ones.
3: I actually have like (laughs) people that are like, so Jasmine, tell me about monkeypox because I'm just trying to figure out like what's going on. So on that note, my Toast to Joy this week is going to be to the first week of classes. Last week was the first week of class at Emory and it was my first time teaching my doctoral uh, class on health social policy and ethics. And I'm so excited about this class because I get to bridge like all of my knowledge about health and healthcare and my policy making. So I get like to bridge all those things. Um, it's a really small class, very intimate class. I met all of my students one-on-one last week. Um, and I'm just really excited. I'm really excited to see the proposals that they come up with. Um, I'm really excited to allow them the opportunity to engage with their elected officials. So I'm, I'm just excited about the semester. So I think my toast to joy is just to the beginning of the semester with a special extra toast to my health, social policy, and ethics class.
4: Oh, nice.
3: That's so cool. All right, Rachel, your turn.
4: Well, my toast to joy this week is to all the people who are continuing to fight when they are attacked in the past couple of months there have been a whole like big, a blitz of uh ridiculous lawsuits that, and the law has been weaponized just try to silence people and this has been done by Stephen miller and his like Mary band of bigots and they've been going around doing these things and you know i mean When you're sued, it costs money and you have to spend your own money. And that's what they're trying to do. And they're trying to intimidate and scare people. So um, I hope to work in the space um, and to help raise some money and also just to help people know to stay strong and to give them encouragement. But they are strong and they are encouraged. And I just think we need to make sure that we are there supporting each other, the people who support us that we're there to fight alongside them and give them encouragement. And we talk about that a lot on the podcast. Absolutely. And I just think it's really, really important that we all do whatever we can. But my toaster joy is them uh, to the people who are fighting and they're not backing down. So play some Tom Petty, jam to it. I will say there was a time in our family, we list like, First thing in the morning, every day, we ask our smart speaker to play Well Back Down by Tom Petty, And um, that's how we started the day. And I think it's a great anthem. But whatever yours is, um, play some Lizzo, whatever the case (laughs) that we played that too. And just get out there and and hold your head high and know that we'll have people with you um, to walk alongside you and fight with you. Cheers to that.
2: Oh, my God. My husband played Top Gun (laughs) the other morning. I'm not sure I appreciated it as much, <laughs> but it got him amped up.
4: <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, One of you us know. was
2: ready to start that day. <laughs> <laughs> so my Toast Joy, speaking of my husband... Uh, It was his 40th birthday this weekend and we surprised him. Yeah, it was so fun. So we surprised him with like a big, huge party at a restaurant where all of our friends were there. And then we went to Cedar Point, lots of roller coasters. I love him very much because this is all not my idea of a good time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was like crowds and crowds of people. So, my introvert brain is like, this is a lot of people. And I also am not a huge roller coaster fan. So, I was like, I really love you, Casey. Like, have fun with roller coasters and the crowds of people. <laughs> That's awesome. I like roller coasters. I do too, surprisingly. Oh, oh, I mean, my idea of a good roller coaster is the Ferris wheel, which I did go on, and it was very fun. All right. Thanks so much to everyone for joining us today. If you're enjoying the show, please share it with someone you know. There are now 10 weeks. That is 10 weeks left until the midterms. It's so important that we all turn out to vote, not just ourselves, but everyone in our lives. You can sign up for our great troublemaker turnout at redwine.blue. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week on another episode of the Suburban Women Problem.
1: The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red Wine and Blue. Our executive producer is Beverly Batt. Our supervising producer is Lindsay Quist. Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstenson. Our production coordinator is Abigail Martin. And our social media coordinator is Shaley Severino. Videos by Abigail Martin and Ashley Hufford. If you want to join the thousands of women who are turning out their friends and family to vote, you can sign up for the great troublemaker turnout by going to redwine.blue.